This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. So this Sunday's a little different, as many of you know. Um, we're in Taango, which is... Um, uh, because there are some new people here, a three-month um, uh, period of intensified practice, more zazen, uh, a focus, uh, or an invitation for people to commit, to make a personal commitment to practice in specific ways. Um, and you can still sign up for that, because I'm getting emails asking about that. Um, and also has a, a particular focus in this, it always does, uh, which is really heritage, lineage, um, the historical basis of how we got here, what you're doing sitting on, on your butt in this zendo, in this temple. Uh, not an accident, I keep saying this week, this is not a pop-up temple. <laughs> you know, it's taken 2,500 years for us to get here. So uh, here we are. Um, and part of... Um, Examining that is looking at the, uh, the, the historical perspective of the previous lives of the Buddha before he was the Buddha, uh, when he was Gautama. So one of the ways that that's looked at is through the Jataka tales. The Jataka tales are, in essence, fairy tales, teaching spiritual fairy tales. And they have their own complicated history of... Um, uh, interpreted through different schools of Buddhism, and some are very old, some are old but not very old, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, like anything in spiritual uh, storytelling, be it the Bible or sutras, you can turn it in a lot of different directions depending on your understanding. Um, and that's important, an important perspective. But I wanted, instead of the usual Dharma talk that would happen on Sunday, which is kind of a, a particular form of teaching. Uh, this is a mondo. So I'm going to offer something and speak a little bit about it, and then it's open. Uh, and so that has a value um, because it invites you to participate. And so normally I talk and you listen, and that's all, folks. Um, now, there are plenty of other opportunities that we give for for interaction. Uh, so yesterday we had a Zazenkai, and... Uh, anyone who attended the Zazenkai can go to face-to-face -face teaching and meet with the teacher. Uh, but this is different. This is not as formal, but it's not, not informal either. And depending on where the question is coming from, the student, it may be very direct uh, or it may be much more explanatory. So the teachings are dependent on the situation, the form of the teaching. We also do something called Dharma Encounter, which is kind of an open Daisan Doksan. Uh, we do that at the end of the Ango sessions, and they tend to be very direct, or as direct as the as a skillful with that particular student. And it's in public; it's completely in public, just as this is. Um, so there's an energy there, and I we like to mix it up on Sundays occasionally. So another Sunday, I think we're gonna, we're going to have a fusatsu, which is a ceremony of renewal of vows. Uh, it's a ceremony that looks at the moral and ethical teachings in a liturgical way. It's very powerful. There is a talk also. 
Uh, it's her, for me, it's my heart beats with it. It's a remarkable ceremony. Um, uh, so within that context, and, and most of the Teishos, most of the talks on Sunday will be related uh, to the, the, the heritage from, from the Buddha, and in this case, previous to the Buddha, um, to, to work within the Ango and, and to help us connect uh, so that we have the opportunity to practice and to study seeing through the eyes of the Dharma ancestors, uh, both the acknowledged ones, of course, that's the traditional men, men's uh, lineage that we chant, chanted today, but also the unacknowledged ones, which we'll chant next week, who are the, the women of, that we've incorporated into the lineage because we wouldn't be here without them. But of course, who are the historians, right? So, you know, what does history record? And thus that alter, thus each week we alternate um, the lineage that we chant. So this is important um, to, to, to pick up the shovel and dig into the past. And you'll relate to that sense of ill humor that I have in a moment. Uh, and dig into the past and, and try and get a better understanding of um, how we got here. It's not just history of men written by men. Uh, it's much more diverse than that. It's much deeper. It has many more layers to it. Um, and, uh, you know, and the, the confusion, and we said this last week, and Shugan said it the week before in his opening of the Ango at the monastery, the confusion started at the time of the Buddha when he, the awakened one, uh, set up a sangha of male monastics. And um, so that's it. And uh, his senior disciple came to him and said, and I was Ananda, I believe, you know, your, your mother is asking to be ordained, your mother. And he said, no, we can't let women into the, into the sangha. And so Ananda went away and Ananda came back um, and said, you know, I don't understand. Um, I'll, I'll shorten the story. He came back and forth three times. And the third time he said, can't women realize themselves? And the Buddha said, yes, they can. Well, duh. You know, why can't? Be? Because practice was understood as being a monastic practice at that time. And the Buddha said, yeah, I guess you're right. And so he admitted women into the Sangha. But he also set a whole new set of rules just for women. Now, he was reacting out of his time and place and the social mores of, of his time and what was acceptable and not acceptable, and he had a functionality, a relative functionality that he had to deal with, just as we do. Uh, but it also set up um, a place of unreality. Uh, Sh Shugan, who told the same story, uh, talked it, about it as two hours not meeting in midair. And two hours meeting in midair is a, a Zen term where where two, the absolute and the relative, two different things meet and are so intertwined that they're as if they are one. They're not one, but it's as if they are one. They're so permeated with each other. And so the duality is gone. Um, and so the, in a sense, he set up confusion. Um, and that confusion is transmitted. And out of that confusion comes uh, many other people 
writing histories and sutras um, and justifying that confusion, the men justifying that confusion. And of course, the women who want to practice have to enter into that confusion. In a way, that confusion permeates them as well. There's an exactly parallel uh, perspective in race in this country. You know, we are dealing with the karma of some of the decisions made when they had the Constitution and they were trying to, should we have slavery? You know, are all men created equal? What about women? What about slaves? Slaves can be men, and on and on and on and on. And the, the, the relative practicality of making a constitution in that time and place, yeah, we're going to keep slavery. And then that pops up again, you know, uh, almost 100 years later, and the Civil War, and the karma of this unreality of these, these two hours not meeting in midair continues to this day to us, and we're imbued with it. Um, and so we're within the mountains and rivers order. We, we are struggling is the right word because of the heaviness of the karma to, to work with the racial issues, with the gender issues. We're kind of emphasizing at this point more the racial. But, you know, look around the room. What do you see? White people, right? There are a few people of color here, but it's basically, for the most part, a middle-class white sangha. So who's being left out? Are they, do they not have the Buddha nature? Should they not have access? But everything is set up. Our institutions, including the MRO, is set up for this, uh, for white middle-class people to be at ease in entering. We're making the rules, uh, especially the men. And that's how it is. And, and I don't say that lightly, and I... And I this is not a confession. This is the reality of me acknowledging that I'm an older white male with male kind of embodiment uh, to who I am. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm infiltrated with this. So are you, no matter what your gender or color or what is, because this is the waters we swim in in this society. But it creates suffering, deep, profound suffering. So all this is an introduction uh, to where the MRO is exploring and going. And having said that, I want to come back to this particular story, which doesn't deal head-on with this necessarily, but does deal with it in a deeper sense. Uh, and uh, again, you'll hear more of this, both in the Ango and probably more even after the Ango, as we learn how to, how to deconstruct these profound aspects of suffering that are built into us and are invisible for that reason to most or all of us. Um, so this is a story, um, and I'm taking the uh, translation from um, uh, a book by Rafe Martin Sensei, who's a very close personal friend of mine, who's a sensei in a different lineage, lineage that I share, though, uh, Roshi Kaplow's lineage. I trained in that for many years, as did he. And he's a very well-known Buddhist storyteller who's written on these many books on these tales. And this is from one of his more recent books um, that I endorsed. <laughs> so, um, and these stories generally are, um, they're really Mahayana stories. They're stories of the Buddha as a bodhisattva, as a would-be 
a person on the way to realizing themselves, just like you and I. No different. And that's their point. That and and they, the, the the Buddha is presented the before the Buddha is the Buddha is presented in many different presentations, animal realms, um, as a camel, as a thief, um, and so on and so forth. And each one has, has points to it. There's surface points and there's subtle points. So I'll read the story and we'll work with that. This is called The Gardener Sage. Um, <laughs> I just realized I didn't take down the story. <laughs> So I'm going to do it from memory. No, it's all right. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I sat down and I, um, I presented it as a taste show. So I have my pages and my stories. And when I get up here, I don't pay much attention to them. Uh, but this is not a taste show, you know, so it's got to be shorter and I can't talk too much. Uh, but anyway, the story is there's a gardener. And um, he's got a shovel and he loves his gardening. And he loves his shovel, and he's digging in the garden, he's digging in the garden, and he's digging in the garden, and he realizes uh, that I need to let go of the garden and my shovel and go on to spiritual practice, to do my spiritual practice. And he says, yep, that's what I need to do. And he goes back to gardening, and he's gardening, and he's gardening, and he's gardening, and he's, this is my treasured shovel, thank you. Oh, I forgot about it. Where did time go? You know, another week has passed and I haven't sat. I haven't done my spiritual practice. I haven't gone to Sashen. You know, I haven't visited the temple. Um, oh, the garden. And he goes back to the garden and he's shoveling and he's shoveling and he's shoveling. And this happens seven or eight times. And uh, finally he realizes I can't keep doing this. I, I recognize what I'm doing. And he takes his shovel and he throws it up in the air into the river. And he yells, I have freed myself. I have freed myself. He yells that at the top of his lungs. And he starts to head off. And a king is passing with his army who was just victorious on the battlefield, as the story goes. And he hears those shouts. And he says, that's the kind of person I need. I need someone with that kind of confidence, that who is someone who's freed himself to lead my army and to, to help. And um, so he goes to the gardener and he says, will, will you lead? And the gardener says, no, I won't lead an army, but I'll lead you to a place that is much more powerful and will free you too. And so as the story goes, the king and the army go off and they all practice happily ever after. So that's the story. So there's a bunch of questions I can ask about this story. So I'll ask some of them, and then we'll open it up, and I may stop at some point and offer some more perspectives of this story. Uh, but I want to encourage you, and you means everybody, even if this is your first time, to inquire as we go along. And it may be intimidating to you, but Welcome to spiritual practice. <laughs> you have to face yourself. Um, and also, I apologize to the people who are new and are coming here for the first time and just received instructions as in. And 
you know, it's precious to receive that instruction and come down and actually do zazen after having received that. And that's not happening today. And I, I weigh that carefully. It weighs on me a bit that you, that you don't get that chance because that lessens the chance of connection for zazen for you, which is life-changing um, to actually do it. But in any case, um, what's the teachings of this story? What's it about? Why did the Buddha give this story in his teachings. That's where this story comes from, from his life. He, he taught this story. Um, so when he tossed the shovel over his shoulder, and as it sinks, um, I have this quote, the gardener cries out, I have won, I have triumphed. Did he triumph? Did he fail before he could not let go of his spade and succeed after he did? These are not what I call first-order questions. There's some subtleties in them. There's teachings in them. What does this story have to do with you and your practice? Why couldn't the gardener keep the spade and practice gardening as the full development of his spiritual practice? Why does he need to toss the, the, the shovel away? So I'm going to stop here. Uh, there are microphones, yes. And our crack microphone crew will jump up and offer that. If you want to speak, um, please raise your hand and um, we'll get you a microphone. Um, this only works if you raise your hand. <laughs> uh, let someone else, because we, we had a mando on Thursday. And a number of people had their shots. So I'd like to hear some new voices. Um, and uh, while Hello. we acknowledge it only works if you actually speak. Mm-hmm. Yes. Say um, your name, please. My name is Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi. Um, I have some questions, too. One was about the gardener's attachment to his gardening practice. Um, it seemed as if... Like we all make this list of things we have to do in our head, mm-hmm. and then we get back to practice. Are you talking about spiritual practice as an attachment? Yes. The gardening okay. practice as the metaphor for spiritual practice, mm-hmm. perhaps. And that um, as much as it helped him, and he enjoyed it, there was a point where he even had to throw that away mm-hmm. to get to some sort of place of realization. Mm-hmm. Um, so the spade was the tool, Um, and then there was a point perhaps when he needed to even let go of the tools and just experience uh, the realization of reality. Okay. So that's kind of a statement you're making? Um, It's a question. I mean, when the idea of um, him enjoying it so much brought up the question of attachment. Mm-hmm. whether there was some attachment to that that he even mm-hmm. was able to let go of. Um, and it makes me think a bit of the Heart Sutra and the idea of even letting go of, you know, this, the, the sort of the, 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 the Four Noble Truths mm-hmm. within the Heart Sutra, letting go of suffering, the root of suffering, letting go of it all. Okay. So let me play the devil's uh, deluded advocate here. Okay. You know, I, many of you don't know this, but I loved chocolate, 
or chocolate ice cream, particularly dark chocolate, if you're wondering, do I love dark <laughs> chocolate or no chocolate? Just an idle comment. Um, uh, so does that mean I have to give up my dark chocolate or my chocolate ice cream? No. Your attachment to it, perhaps, but not ah. the enjoyment of it. Ah. So thank you. So this story is about attachment. Not just about attachment, but the story is about attachment. Um, I'm not going to say anything else about what you said. I think what you offered is insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? I was a little surprised. Um, work practice is a thing we do around here. I mean, the monastery has a garden. You go and you work in the garden. Uh, Yukon's even here, I think. So, <laughs> you know, to, to hear about a guy liberating himself by saying, well, like, this isn't a place I can practice. I'm going to take my tool. I'm just going to throw it in the river and walk off and find practice some other place. Doesn't sound like things I've heard around here before. And I was wondering if you had comments on that. I, I have plenty of comments on that, but I'd much rather hear if anyone else has comments on that. So what about that? Um, uh, this Get somebody in the back who's raising his hand. He should get the microphone next, but in a moment. Um, so this is a terrific point of, um, you know, on one side you have, here we are, wherever we are, um, in your life, can that not be practice? Here we are, where I put myself all the time, is that not practice? So why do I need to throw the shovel away? Yukon. So Yukon, senior monastic, is our gardener. It's not a small garden. It's not, it's not a part-time garden. He's been here this whole week and dying inside because someone is screwing up his garden. <laughs> Actually... And, and he brought a shovel with him. <laughs> and, well, the, tr- the truth is that I have to let go of that garden when I come here and do this garden. But, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as a place where I really um, love to inhabit and I love to work there, and I've loved to have found that connection uh, between uh, a life of work and spiritual practice, um, for me... Um, the garden is the whole thing. So the work, and there's no separation between my life, my spiritual practice, the garden, anything else, so that when I do come here, I really do come here, and I consider this my garden. And then when I go back, then I continue to do that work. And what I'm feeling from the story, and, and, and Hogan Sensei, tell me if, if I'm off, is that there was a, a, a sensibility in that story that because he goes off, throws away his shovel, meets these warriors and these, this army, and shows them another way that it was a good thing what he did. So um, personally, I, I find it annoying. And um, it's like the, the true sensibility is to do what you're doing while you're doing it. Has been, it was one of Daito Roshi's mottos. And, and that being the, the essence of what a life, a spiritual life is, to really be engaged and awake to be doing what you're doing while you're doing it. So that being the case, um, what do you do early in the morning and late in the evening? We sit. Why? You've got the garden. Well, it's like that's also a part of the garden as well, sitting and zazen 
And there's no separation between that. And we still sit, and you still do that, because that's what our life is as well. And then when you go to the garden, you take that mind into the garden as well. Okay. So there's a partial answer, but there's another answer. Uh, so the other answer is, why don't you do the garden? Why, why are you at the monastery doing a garden? You can do a garden, uh, you know, any place. You can do a garden. You're from California, aren't you? <laughs> why can't you do a garden? And California is a wonderful place to do gardens. Why don't you go to California? It's a lot nicer. The weather's nicer. The people are much nicer. <laughs> you know, why don't you go to California and do a garden? What are you doing at the monastery for? Because it's monastery. It's all inclusive. Everything is the garden. Everything is sitting. Everything's one thing. It's kind of like when you when you're working, and you're you're wholly working. You're touching the practice when you're sitting, and you're wholly sitting. You're touching your life in that way. I mean, it's not. Where's the separation? So I want to be a little more specific to you. You could do a garden in California. You could sit in California. Why are you doing it at the monastery? No, I mean, that's where my life is. That's where I ended up. That was my karma. Well, that's bullshit. It's your karma. You know, <laughs> by, by definition, where you end up is your karma. It's true of everybody. What are you doing at the monastery? Why are you there? I practice. Why are you practicing? I practice because that's what called me. That's my, that's my life. That's what called you. That's, yes. So what happens when you get... You know, Zen Training Weekend comes in. This is comes. We have it every month. People's usually their first exposure to Zen training. May or may not be the first exposure to Zen practice, but training. What's training? It's complete permission. It's um, you do the garden. Yes, ma'am. I'm there. So you get someone in the garden, and ugh, I don't want to get my hands dirty. Worms. Ugh. Compost. Ugh. There's there's a lot of that. <laughs> What about for them? For them, they, they learn once again to... They're, they're, they've come there for a very particular reason, right? They've come to open and learn no, something no, no, new. No, I didn't come to get my hands in cow shit. Ah, but that's what we teach them. It's all there. It's all there. It's all there. Okay, thank yeah. you for your teaching. Yeah, thank you for your teaching. So coming back to your question, what is a spiritual calling? What is that for you? Yes, any place you go is the whole Dharma, even California, even Washington, D.C., even the White House. The whole Dharma is there. So why do you throw away a shovel? Why is you come at the monastery? Why am I here? Why are you here? You could be, you know, getting ready for Sunday football or whatever that equivalency is, you know, for our Sundays, our free time, our whatever that is for us, reading a book or having some coffee or reading the Times or, I don't know, and I'm aged out of what Brooklynites do on Sunday. <laughs> but that was what I did in my day. <laughs> yes. So I, I've been known to have some brunch on Sunday. Yeah. Um, but I guess, um, to Yukon's point, there was something that called me. There was something that felt off doing the regular stuff that, you know, you would do if you weren't practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of different things before I ended up here, mm-hmm. and um, I'll say I'm not ready to like throw out my laptop out the window and like leave my desk job. But um, the more I show up here, the more I can show up there, and like Yukon said, you know, just make everything one thing. Um, 
And the more I do that, the better things seem to go. So I, I keep showing up as best I can. Okay. So when the Buddha offered this story, um, he did it in a particular set of circumstances, as the story goes. Um, so there was a monastic who, and so put yourself back in the time of the Buddha, where you know eating was not always, food was not always completely available, and your career choices, particularly in the caste system of India, were limited. Um, and um, also goes back to the gender issue, but I'm going to let that go for this story um, in terms of limited choices. Um, and so it was tempting and common, really common throughout India and through the life of Buddhism, Zen in China, um, for people to take up monasticism as a safe place. Um, particularly later in China, you could actually get something of an education in Japan also. Um, but you got to eat. You got the equivalent of three meals. It actually wasn't three meals. It was one meal, but it was food. You were alive. You got company of people. And yeah, so you had to sit there and, you know, it's a pain in the ass, but okay. So I, I can sit there and, you know, tomorrow's another meal. And so the story is about a monastic who joined the Sangha and became ordained for that reason. And so, you know, the guy's sitting there, but eventually, you know, if there's no heart, if there's no energy to that, if there's no connection, there's no, what, what you were talking about, that no pull on you to realize yourself, to, to take another step to, is there more to this life than just what I'm experiencing? Uh, that the question, if that question isn't there, sitting is really a drag. You know, sooner or later, you, you know, what am I doing? So the person would leave. He'd deordain and leave. And then after a while, he'd get hungry and he'd come back. And he did that, so the story goes, six or seven times. Familiar. And then finally, what, you know, what happens when you sit? Zazen, I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever had this experience, where I sit down for the beginning of a sitting or a session, and my mind is in who knows where it is because I can't even define where it is, but it's not in the zazen, right? So you're very, very separated from your zazen. But you keep sitting, and you keep sitting, and you keep sitting, and something happens. Either you go crazy, and you run out of there screaming because you can't take another moment, or something begins to fall away. You're not getting to anything. Nothing's coming to you. It's just the opposite. Something begins to fall away. And so in this story uh, that the Buddha offered, this person who kept ordaining and unordaining and ordaining and unordaining and noticed that, that that was okay, the door was very wide as it is here, um, actually realized himself. He awoke. Or she awoke. And the Sangha was amazed. How could this wastrel, this person who's, you know, what in Zen is called a rice bag, they're only good for feeding rice into their body, um, you know, awaken. And this was the Buddha's point of this story and uh, the circumstances that he offered it. So what are you going to do with that? Floor's open. Yes. Hi, Hogan Sensei. So... You know, in the story that you offered, one could say, 
well, the attachment isn't in the shovel, the attachment is in the mind, so throwing the shovel away is, is useless. But the question is, what is mind? So I speak of this very personally, that as I, as I go through my spiritual journey, there is a way in which the material aspect of my life needs to be a mirror to my evolving spiritual journey. So that literally sometimes means throwing objects out, making more space. So I would like, that's, that's kind of where I'm taking this. I think that's why he had to throw the shovel away. He was attached to it. The story is about attachment, fundamentally. And he, just like you, are describing what you need to do. So each of us, at certain points in practice, need to do what we need to do in order to go deep within ourselves. It, it has nothing to do with the shovel or you know, decluttering your life or whatever that is. It has to do with what you need to do. And that's the essence of practice. That's the essence of the call. What do you need to do given this person, you, where you are in this time and place, given all the conditional perspectives of your life, given who you are, given what you know about yourself, and the fundamental question of your life, what do you want? What do you actually want for your life? Because in a non-intellectual, non-linear way, that's what you're going to get. What you want for your life is what you're going to get. That's called karma. Uh, There's a cause and effect. And so what you want from your life, from your thoughts about that, from your actions about that, from what you say about that, and especially from what you do, but from all of those things, that will create an effect of your life. And as I said, it's it's not going to be linear. It's not going to be what you expect. I mean, I never expected I'd be people who know my life and know something about I can't account for me sitting here in this time and place. And being a Zen teacher, it makes no sense whatsoever. But the karma of the desire to awaken and to live my life on that basis uh, has taken me here. And there, there's no straight lines in this journey. There's no, there's no free rides in this journey of waking up. Now, the point is not about being a Zen teacher. It's about waking up. And waking up is not something like emptiness. There's no thing called waking up. It, it is... The if, if you want to wake up, I would suggest one way to understand that is the deepening of your life to become as fully human as, I'm, as you can be, and I don't mean in a humanistic psychological sense here, uh, as fully human meaning there's nothing outside you and to experience that for yourself and for that to enlighten you and to live out of that specific to who you are in your life journey. Uh, don't get confused about being a teacher or being a monastic. That's not better than not being a teacher or not being a monastic. As a human being, when I'm done here, I'm going to take off my robes and and wear my T-shirt or my equivalent of a T-shirt and my pants and get in the car with my wife. Um, and we're going to drive home to a farm with cows and pigs and be there for a few weeks till we come back here or go to the monastery. We're all human beings in this room. We all deal with our suffering. And we all have the ability inherently to live that life, whatever it is, in the garden, in my farm, here, with you, in a wholehearted, 
enlivened, awakened way. So what do you want? Hey, how are you? Did you want to make a comment? Oh, I'm sorry. Person in front. Yes, please. Hi, my name is Benjamin. Um, I think the story hit me on a, on a very personal level um, because I'm currently struggling with uh, prioritizing, prioritizing work and spiritual practice. Um, and it, I think for a lot of us that live outside the bounds of a of a of a, a spiritual tradition right now it's almost like we live in a religion of work work is is uh becomes the uh the thing that defi- that defines us um when the story starts and it's about a gardener right it's almost as if um is that the truest essence of that being um Sometimes that's how it feels for me as I go deeper into my career. Am I, um, am I, I happen to be a psychologist. Am I a psychologist? Is that the meaning of who I am? And it goes so far as last night I was on a, a date with my wife and I, I said, how can we figure out how to not talk about work for like two hours? Because we always just talk about work. Can we ever separate from work? And I think that's, that's part of what's pulled me here. Um, in the past few months is can there be a place where that that relative piece of my existence the the career that I chose can can fall away um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sympathetic I've lived that life um, also just just because this is so much on my mind what came up for me is uh, the career life of a woman who wants to have a child. So I don't have to say anything more about that. It's, it's an equivalent in a way. Uh, and it's also different in a way. Um, you know, this is a problem that's not a problem. What do I mean by that? I know you're shaking your head, but what, what I'm asking you a question. No, I think it's it's something that can be accepted. It can be accepted and addressed by completely, and this is going to sound parental and loaded and maybe condescending, and if so, I apologize. But if you, if you really enter into your situation and see the problem clearly and ask yourself, what do you want, then it gets much more clarified. That doesn't mean that tomorrow, if what you want is some relief and some, you know, spiritual, uh, some ability to practice or whatever that is, um, uh, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it will happen because we can do that. We can plan how to do that. We can, as you ask for your wife, how how do we take care of this problem? And so when I say it's not a problem, you can take care of this. You can do this. Um, it'll have its own time and place and karma. So, you know, by the way, the person sitting in back of you to your right is my wife, Aho. And I'm mentioning that because when we were in our 40s and living in Colorado, and I had a very large medical practice, we kind of looked at each other and had been practicing Zen at a center very much like this for 17 years, 
or actually at that time it was about 13 years when we asked this question, we looked at each other, and basically we, we had this conversation somewhat similar to the one you had with your wife, but a little different. And we said, this is our life. This is what we have. If we continue living this way, it's tracked. We're going to end up at the end of our life with all the material things we could ever want, with uh, you know, kind of a steady Zen practice. Um, I'm at the top of my mental, physical, and um, medical abilities. Um, helping people in my context, what do we want for the rest of our life? And I said, I don't, get, I don't need, I don't want to help people medically anymore. There are a million people who can do that. What I see in front of me in each person that I meet, not just in my work, is suffering. That's what I see. And there's nothing I can do about that. But is there a life I can lead that we can do something about that. And, you know, I'm taking the story out of context because we already knew about Zen Mountain Monastery and its appeal to us. Um, and the particular teacher who was there at that time, Daito Roshi. And so there was, there was a, the, the, an inf- a connection that was in its infancy. Um, but asking that question is the key point. What do I want? And continually asking that question. And it never ends asking that question. What do I want? How do I want to die? You know, you know that question is on my mind. You know, what's the implications of that? And so we made choices out of that. We acted on that. It took five years from the time we asked that question actively to actually be able to do that. We had a son. He was needed care and time and so on and so forth. The specifics don't matter. But we knew what our track was because we were asking a question and going deeply into the question. So it's not a superficial, it's not on the top of your brain when you ask questions like that. You're not asking questions to get information here. Uh, you may have to get information to, to, to go deeper. But you're asking, you're, you're asking, you're speaking to your open heart and saying, what does this human being want so that when the last time you, I close my eyes for the last time, is this a life that is a life that has been well lived, that I've given what I had as a human being to this world? And given the circumstances, my, my peculiar circumstances that each of us have, our unique circumstances. And, you know, the, the whole basis of Buddhism is that every person in this room has Buddha nature. Every person in this room is a would-be Buddha. Um, and from the Buddhist perspective, not the personal perspective, from the Buddhist perspective, if that's what you want, that can happen. Now, the permeation of that and the specifics in your life, and the specifics in your wife, the specifics in your job, specifics of all the, you know, the stuff around in the life we've built influence that and need to be respected. So I'm going on at length with this because this applies to every single one of us. Every one of us faces what you face in our own way. And it's a problem that's not a problem. And that's how spiritual practice is. There actually are no problems. There are things that need to be addressed, but there are no problems. Sometimes those problems can't be solved from the same level of understanding that the problem is being framed in. And you have to reframe the problem and reframe your understanding and ask some additional questions. You know, so that's a basic law of science, right? You can't solve the, the lack 
the problems that Newtonian physics brings up that are unsolvable within Newtonian physics from, from that system. You have to look at other, other more subtle ways of understanding reality. And the same with that level of reality. And so it is with our life questions. Hi, um, I'm Lorraine. I, I'm new. Um, What's your name? Lorraine. Thank you. Uh, I'm new not only here, but to the whole concept. Um, and one of the things I found um, really disturbing about the story is I'm worried about the garden. <laughs> and I see the garden less as an attachment than a responsibility. And it's about nurturing. And I started this garden, and it needs me. And, you know, um, is the question, what do I want? Or is the question, what does this garden need from me? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. And that's, that's something each gardener has to decide. That's, that's something that, you know, um, one of my teachers in the past said something that was very powerful for me in, in working with people, or in this case, working with the garden, um, that you as a practitioner or as a teacher have a lot less effect on people than you think. So don't be so worried about what you say and what you do. And, he said, you also have a lot more effect than you think. So don't get stuck there either. So that would be my response, part of my response. The other part of that response is you can't do everything. You cannot have everything. That there's a price for any choice you make. And that's your job to determine that price to determine what you're willing to pay for what you want. So when we, Ejo and I, moved from Colorado to the monastery, there were prices, huge prices. Um, I had to leave my medical practice. I had to leave my partner in medicine. Uh, We had to leave our son. He graduated from high school. Uh, And the the circumstances were appropriate to that. Uh, But our son, you know, He's in Colorado, and we're, you know, and on and on and on. I'm just hitting the top few that we can all relate to. Um, And that's our responsibility. And there's a karma for that. And a karma came out of all of those things. So you leave the garden. You don't leave the garden. Uh, What's the karma of not leaving the garden in terms of your own spiritual life? What's calling you? Um, And there are no free rides in this business of life. Absolutely. Every decision has an effect. And the law of unintended consequences rules supreme, that we will never accurately predict that effect completely, maybe a little if we're lucky. And so, yes, you can view it from the garden, garden's perspective. That is not you. There's a difference between the garden and you. There's also a non-difference between the garden and you. And to be able with the, to have the wisdom to see both those things, and come back into your life and say, what do I need to do now, is, is the edge of seeing the difference between attachment and a desire to awaken. And those are two very, very different things. And um, attachment always leads to suffering. Um, I want to read something um, that my teacher, John Didalori, said. He said, non-attachment 
should be understood as unity with all things. According to the Buddhist point of view, non-attachment is exactly the opposite of separation. You need two things in order to have attachment. The thing you're attaching to, a garden or a shovel, and the person who's attaching, my sense of myself, separate sense of self, two different things. In non-attachment, on the other hand, there aren't two things. There's only one wholeness. There's unity because there's nothing to attach to. If you have unified with the whole universe, there's nothing outside you. So the notion of attachment becomes absurd. Who would attach to what? So, you know, I simplified the story of me leaving my medical practice. Um, So forgive me this arrogance. Um, I, I was a foot surgeon. And one of my specialties was dealing with the diabetic foot. And then some people in this room are going to know what that means. It's, it's the, the worst consequence that you can imagine to our lower extremities in diabetes, which amputation, infection, kidney failure, death. That's the track. That's what I dealt with. And from my perspective, it's kind of like flying a plane, uh, an airline pilot. Um, I, I knew I was very, very good at this. I knew that there were very, very few people in my area, in my large area, in Colorado, who could do what I do and do it well. It's a gift. It's a talent. And when I walk away, it's not clear to me who will take care of those people. And I chose to walk away. So who is taking care of that garden? Why did I make that choice? The choice that I made leads me here today. This is, as Yukon said, this is my garden. We are tend- I'm tending you, but you're also tending me. But put that aside. I'm here teaching. And so there's a garden there. There's a garden here. There are consequences to all these. And so it's important And it's important to see what we want and what's wholesome in terms of our attachment. Maybe you're not attached to the garden. Maybe you are. That should be looked at because to the extent there's attachment, is to the extent there's suffering. End of story. Have I helped you at all? Uh, Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We started the discussion um, first question and point about throwing about the difference between enjoying something and, and being attached to it. And, and it occurs to me that right after this young lady mentioned that, and then Yukon talking about gardening, that it wasn't the gardening that was the problem, and that the shovel represented the attachment, not the gardening itself. And I think <coughs> where it struck me is a struggle I've had for a long time about right livelihood, uh, about choosing a profession that involves many hours and a lot of... Let me just uh, jump in because I see people wrestling. You can, in this context, you can change your position. If you need to stand up without blocking others, you can do that because this is going on, but it's also gold. So I, I want to go on a little bit, but don't put yourself in a place that you're 
uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable. Little is okay. So, um, you know, I've always said, well, you know, it, it, you want to talk about taking away from practice and that it's, it's long hours and, 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 you know, I've always tried to struggle with this. How do I, you know, make this, is this the right, maybe it's the livelihood. And in listening today and, and something I've come to realize is that there are elements of my work that do take me away from practice and it's not the hours. And it's an attachment to organizing. It's an attachment to, as you were saying with your pre- with your medical practice, there were things you do, were able to do that others were not able to do as well, and not out of arrogance, but you recognized it. And there is, there can become an attachment to that. I can do this, um, and you know, I'm making this situation better, and it's, and this is where I need to be. And that can be a good thing, but it also can be an attachment. And right. so as I still struggle with this, I'm starting to see the difference between the shovel and the gardening. And the gold is in the struggle. The gold is in the question. The gold is in the, the, the process of trying to clarify it. That's practice. It's not in coming to the right decision. There is no right decision. It's all yours. Whatever that decision is, there are consequences to that, karma to that. It's not a threat. It's just the law, the law of reality. Um, and so, you know, what you're saying and what you kind of pointed out earlier about, you know, completely present, I'm going to use a different word, loaded a little bit, completely awake in the midst of gardening. Well, things don't always go well in the garden. And trust me, I hear all the stories from you. <laughs> they don't always go well, just like things don't always go well in your work. So given that, how can we practice and awaken in the midst of the circumstances we're in? So that's always one question, because we're always in circumstances, and we always can think of ways to, that we desire those circumstances to be different or better or substitute something. That will never end, okay? Um, if it does, I'd be. I'd ask, "Am I dead?" You know, I'd ask that of yourself. Um, and at the same time, to commit yourself completely to where you are, because this is where you've put yourself. You have put yourself there. And at the same time, to understand that if something is calling to you from your heart, how do you work towards that? How do you clarify that question? How do you investigate that without forever holding on to that shovel? Uh, and the clarification may be going towards it, or it may be no. Or it may be, as in my case, we're going to go there. And for five years, every morning I woke up, and I said, I'm not at the monastery. And then I let go of that attachment, which it was, and I went about my day, practicing, going to the local Zen center, sitting, going to Sushin when I could at Zen Mountain Monastery, coming back to Colorado, year after year after year for five years. And so that's practice. That's as much practice as anything I ever did at the monastery. In fact, it taught me far more than... It's essential. It's essential. There is no... You know, as much as I love the monastery and I say all the, all the time, for me, it's the magic kingdom. If this is what you want, this kind of training, it's the magic kingdom. There is no magic kingdom. The magic kingdom is where you are. That's the whole point of practice. That's, that's what you realize. The magic kingdom has always been where you are. It will never be any place different. 
Um, I just wanted to ask if we could maybe more clearly define attachment because I think we use this terminology a lot. We use a lot of terminology in Buddhism and um, I would like to more deeply understand what that means. I know it's something that creates suffering, um, but beyond that, is it um, a dependence on something that leads to craving? Is it a tool of avoidance? How would you define an attachment? It's all of those things. Um, So you can define it in psychological terms, but attachment (coughs) fundamentally, so I'm going right to the bottom, is your separate sense of self. That's attachment. Mm -hmm. It's who you think you are. And so what comes out of who you think you are is desire. You want something, and wanting something means also, I don't want something. That's implicit in it. Or um, I use this term advisedly, numb and dumb to it, meaning I'm numb to it or uh, ignorant of it. So attachment is rooted in our sense of self-separation. I'm here inside this body. You're out there. Everything else is out there. That's the reality I live in. And so naturally, whatever I want is out there because everything else is out there other than little old me. So I want stuff. So I get it, and I grab it, and I hold on to it. Satisfying. Fills a need. I hold on to it. I hold on to it. I hold on to it. That's attachment. But how I won't is... let go of it, because mm-hmm. it fills me. Mm-hmm. But it's inherently suffering, because it's not real. The attachment isn't real. It's not real in the sense there's no fixed self. There is a shovel here, if you will. There is a self here. But I've mistakenly created that with my thought as some fixed thing. So I can go on and on because this is Buddhism 101. Um, and sitting with in Zazen, you received Zazen instruction today or in the past? Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes. Yes. So what are you doing in Zazen? You're sitting there with your sense of self. Your self is sitting there. What is that sense of self? It's thoughts. That's it's your thinking mind. And so a thought comes up. You're working with your breath. A thought comes up, interrupts that flow. And you see that thought. You see yourself. Your thought is yourself. Yourself is your thought. And you let it go. That's called non-attachment. You let it go. And you come back to your breath, kind of a neutral, ever-present reality. And you do that again, and you do that again, and you do that again in a million billion times. And at some point along the way, you let go of the thought, and you come back to your breath, and another thought does not arise. There is not another thought. What happened to you? You've fallen away. You're not present as a separate being. It's just the breath. And where's the limit? Where's the beginning? Where's the end of that breath? There's nothing you can say. And so, where's the suffering? There's no suffering in that. There's complete freedom in that. But what, who are you in that moment where the self, the limited sense of self defined by thought has fallen away? Who are you? Want to take a shot at that? It's a good what's question. <laughs> what, what's left? 
when your sense of separate self has gone, what is left? Mm-hmm. The whole phenomenal universe is left. You're experiencing that. The whole, everything is left as wholeness. Now that's the awakened mind, which is there in you and in every other being. And please don't take what I say and reify it, because none of this description will help you in Zazen. Mm-hmm. You've actually got to do it. Mm-hmm. And I hesitate to even go down this path and explain it. It's a little bit out of context, and we're not doing Zazen, and that goes back to my regret of people getting introduced mm-hmm. to Zazen and yet not doing it. That's a significant downside. I, I may have altered somebody's life course by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not kidding. I, I feel that. Um, so everything I'm saying may be helpful, but it too is just a description of what cannot be described. But when you experience it for yourself, when body and mind fall away, when the thoughts fall away, which is called samadhi, and then you go even deeper into deep samadhi, then what you experience is a mind that is, the word we tend to use is clear. It's completely clear like the open blue sky. There's no boundary to it. That's who you are. And it's not that you don't, get up in the morning and use the toilet or, you know, have relationships or don't have, you know, your whole life is there. But the perspective is it's, it's whole. It's a whole life. You are whole and nothing's outside. But then a spiritual calling or when Ben explores what he wants, what he really needs, isn't that also an extension of self? Yes, that's all we got. <laughs> that's what we work with. So Master Dogen said to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what we got. We wake up with the self. Just to study the self. And he went on to say, to study the self is to forget the self. Mm-hmm. That's the zazen part, where the mind begins to slow down and eventually stops. To forget the self is to be awakened by the 10,000 things. I just said all this in a different way. To be awakened by all of reality. Yes. How do you get free of attachment? To, to reframe your question. How do you get free of attachment? You study attachment. You you get free of attachment by attachment, by looking at your attachment. Because when you look at it closely, you're creating pain for yourself. But look at the story. It took him seven times. Look at the monk who was a rice bag and who everyone else. That's not the only time that's happened. Shanti Deva is a very famous example, and many of People in this room know the story of Shantideva, who's one of the great um, Buddhist um, enlightened beings and scholars and has written remarkable uh, treatises on awakening and practice, you know, really practice, not scholarly treatises. And everyone thought he was a rice bag in his monastery. You know, he's just hanging around. He's, He's a goof off not doing anything. And someone says, let's have the goof off give a talk so we can all laugh. And he gets up there and he offers this unbelievable dharma. You know? And if, if you've ever looked at his writings, which are vastly available, um, easily available, it's, holy mackerel, if I could do that. You know? But it, it creates an inspiration in you. So that's you and I, constantly failing, constantly being attached and practicing it. Thank you. Um, If I could just offer one more thing. Uh, This has been a a wonderful teaching, Sensei. Thank you. 
And uh, I think that now that I kind of understand where they were coming from with the perspective hits, um, it's been the, it has been the practice. It's been the zazen that has allowed me to actually understand what the garden is. Without the practice, without zazen, without being able to drop down, I wouldn't have been able to meet the garden. So now that I kind of get, I kind of got lost in that army thing and got carried away <coughs> by it. But to this other gardener, Lorraine, you know that? Um, for me, uh, since you're new to the practice, I, I, um, I um, honor your gardening and also uh, taking up a practice might really be beneficial to you to in terms garden. of what, what that gardening is. So thank you for this. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. it's enlightened me. You know, I hesitated to call on you con- in this context. And the reason is, I don't, wanna, I don't want this to go to his head, so I'll, I'll reframe it. He's a seasoned practitioner. <laughs> no, he's not. That's my point. He was, but he's not now. <laughs> he was... Wait, wait, wait. This is relevant. Share your story of your journey the last few years of your dance with the monastery because it's fascinating. Well, what, what's so amazing to me is when I hear your story of how you found, found practice and where you came from and what you had to let go of to actually get to the monastery. And for me, you know, I had nothing. I was a drug addict, ex-hippie, Berkeley maniac. And my path was and straight. And he's not to, kidding when he says he was Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. And so my path was so different, but we wanted the same thing. We wanted to clarify this life and wanted to find our way to it rather than away from it. So we come to this place from all different angles, you know, and end up within this incredible dharma. And it's, it's so exciting because I love when you tell your story and then I love thinking about how I got there. And, uh, and our paths were so circuitous, and yet they both ended up here together in this. I, I just want to share my first impression of, of Yukon. <laughs> um, uh, I came to the monastery uh, to visit, to check it out, to check out Daido Roshi. And I was assigned to work practice, and I was in the back of a truck with a man who had a handlebar mustache, who was an absolute wild man, just, you know... He's not manic-depressive. He's manic, you know, <laughs> and all over the place. And Daito Roshi was involved somehow. And he's going at Daito Roshi, just going at him and going at him. And I had trained for years in a, in a place where there's a different teacher, different set of circumstances. And there's definitely a proper Zen man and a proper Zen woman. And you, you act certain ways, and you don't act other ways. And it's one of the reasons I went... To, to, to Daito Roshi, a guy with tattoos who'd been in the Navy when he was 17 and all of the things that young kids in the Navy do. It doesn't take much imagination. And he used the F-bomb and the whole thing, all of which I totally related to growing up in Brooklyn in the, in the 50s and 60s and was in me and is still in. I have to, be, have to throttle myself back not to say FFF all the time. Um, and there he is. And I'm going, this, what is this person doing here? Why is he in the back of this truck with me? You know? <laughs> and, and he kept talking to me and saying, well, I've been doing a dance with the monastery for years, coming and going and coming and going and coming and going. 
And I said, well, why don't you go? You know? <laughs> I said, in my mind, I actually didn't say that to him. Um, and I could go into more detail, but <laughs> it would just uh, embarrass me. Um, so that's, that's a huge part of the journey. And the story I told about Shantideva or the rice bag monk, that's us. That's us. It, it doesn't matter, you know, all of this stuff. What only matters is what you want and whether you're, you're staked on, on getting it. Whether you, you've decided that's important enough to live your life in a way that, that fosters that, that supports that. And I also want to clarify something because this can be easily misunderstood. There's nothing magic about being a monastic as opposed to a lay person. This is a lay temple. Uh, we just had a visit from Roshi uh, um, Godwin, who is an abbot. Uh, she leads the Houston Zen Center. It's almost identical to this. It's lay. Um, and, and we talked a long time about the development of practice in this. It happens here. Lay practice practitioners realize themselves here. It happens here. So it's not magic. It's it's. In fact, no one other than monastic knows how challenging and difficult it is to actually be a monastic. It's not in your worldview because it's not in our it's not in our culture. We we don't have this culture of monasteries in, in the United States. It's not a part of us for the most part. Um, uh, so I'm not going to belabor that. I, the point I want to make is it's not about being a monastic anymore. It's about being a Zen teacher. It's about you and your practice and your life and you realizing it within that context. We're only going for a couple of minutes more. So just to be aware, who, who is next? The people who have the microphones are next. Hi, I'm Brian. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that story. And um, this uh, this discussion has helped me understand it a little bit. Um, I was trying to think about the significance of throwing away the shovel, but then um, him saying, I won. Just hold the microphone closer. Oh, him saying, I won. And then the second half of the story, uh, being introduced to a king and being offered, you know, the general position. And I, I, I don't think I understood the story until everyone started talking about their careers and, and you shared your story and the gardener needs to put down the shovel to stop being the gardener. So he could be a spiritual person. Like the doctor needs to put down the stethoscope, but then the temptation to become a general in such a, like in a caste system, that's probably like the top of the pyramid and that, temptation he also that was a choice uh like a profound choice because uh he he could have been the leader of his realm and uh he denied that as well um we haven't discussed the second half of the story too much so i've been thinking about that there's a couple of points and they're obvious points one is you know there's a cultural aspect to the story Right, which doesn't apply or we don't relate to. Um, and we're not the people who the story was originally directed at, who are in a specific set of circumstances. So we have to allow for that. Uh, just, you know, if you look at the grim fairy tales and their original presentation and, you know, the sanitized version now, 
it's hard to believe it's the same story, right? Um, so it's the same thing. You have to allow for that. Um, but don't miss the Buddha's story. You know, he had, you know, all of his kingdom was his. And, uh, with, and it's interesting. Look at the karma of that. You know, from that perspective, it makes perfect sense. You should be the king. You know, that's what his parents wanted. That's, you should be the king. How many kings do we remember from history? They're all dead. They're all gone. The Buddha is in this room, you know. And what did that come out of? That didn't, that, that didn't come out of a self. That came out of selflessness. That came out of a desire to awaken. That you are sitting here instead of being one of, you know, an infinite number of kings and queens and royalty and special people and presidents and prime ministers who literally are in the dustpan for the most part of history, who have not, you know, their, their influence has been to the negative, not to the positive in, in any real sense. Well, you know, I talked before how, how important it is, for me at least, that when I die to know that this life has been lived. And, and I'm not talking in terms of fame, and the Buddha wasn't talking in terms of fame. He was talking about you sitting, you actually sitting. That's him. That's you. Um, that's, that's how it is. And these things come out of our choices, out of our, our clarifying these choices, out of questioning. You know, the easy way to go along is just ride the wave of kind of where we put ourselves or where life has put ourselves or where we are, I'm old, I'm young, or I'm this, I'm that, I'm sick, I'm da-da-da, and, and just ride that wave until the wave evaporates, meaning you're dead. Um, but there's more there. And what does the person want? That's the endless, bottomless question that I constantly ask students. What do you want? And I'm not asking them to give me an answer. The answer that someone says when you ask that question is not important. It's a question that needs not to be answered. It needs to be clarified. And that's the heart of this story, as well as looking at attachment. You know, so the spiritual journey is one aspect, but at the heart of that spiritual journey is letting go of the self. That's what it's about, and that's what every story within Buddhism is about. Okay, one more person. Yes, please. Hey, my name's Todd. Uh, I just take a crack at wondering if the gardener was the king's gardener. No information. And can practice become an attachment? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. So, you know, it, it's not that it can become an attachment. It will become an attachment. It's a given. It's a 100% given. And it may need to be a 100% given. So we're looking outside ourselves to be saved, right? So most of Buddhism and most of any religion, Christianity and Judaism, we're looking to God, we're looking to the forms, we're looking to the liturgy, we're looking to the teacher. If you ever want to talk about projection, I know there's some psychologists and psychiatrists in the be a Zen teacher, you know, and hold up the projections that people offer you. Um, no one can save you except you. That's what the, what is this practice about? No one can save you except you. And that's because you're already a Buddha. So no one can give you what you've already got. That's the essential con the Buddha faced after his awakening. What, what did he realize? From the beginning, all beings are whole and complete. It's a given. That's his realization. That's the awakening. 
how am I going to get up from under this tree and actually offer anybody something that they already have? How could I possibly do that? I can't do that. So he sat there trying to clarify this question, the same thing I'm pleading with you to do, clarify a question for you, your life question. And it's, it's a koan. It's, what do I do? If I get up and try and give them something, I'm already, in a sense, violating the teachings, violating what I've experienced. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, add, put snow on top of ice, so to speak. And then he looked around, just like when you look around. And what do you see? You see suffering when you look closely. You see it. You see it in your eyes, in my eyes, in the next person's eyes. That's what you see. And it's not just, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm suffering. But, you know, in Buddhism, suffering is understood as attachment. That's what suffering is. So you see it wherever you go. So, you know, part of the mind states, deluded mind states, is a joyful, wonderful mind state. And, you know, how can I perpetuate this? That's suffering. So I'm just clarifying that most of the people here know this, and I talk about it often. But So what he had to face was, I don't think I can help people, but there's so much suffering, I have to try. And the, the, I'm not in control of the outcomes. What happens after that, I have no idea but I have to try. And that's the bodhisattva vows that we are about to take. That is the vows, to save all sentient beings. It's not saving them in the name of Christ or saving them in the name of something else. It's just to offer them to the best of your ability in whatever way is appropriate, which may mean ignoring them, whatever way is appropriate to help. To help them realize their full humanness and the other vows. And that's what I can do as a human being. In my own clumsy, ill-mannered, personality-driven way, that's what I can do with this body and mind. And so can you. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us on October 6th at the Zen Center of New York City for Our Lineage of Spiritual Friends, a day-long retreat with Mark Finn. For details or to find out more about ZCNYC programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.